Well, it is a pleasure to be here with you this morning. I am now known as the guy that brought Leviticus to this church a couple years back. We're moving backwards. We're in Exodus. I'm sure the next time I visit you, if you would ever have me again, we'll be in Genesis. So we're going to move our way backwards through uh, the law. But really, it is a joy for me to be with you all here. Uh, it's total, I'm totally honest that our church back in Mountain View, California, uh, we pray for you often. Uh, we love Pastor Dan and the ministry that uh, y'all are doing out here, and uh, we really are very thankful for you. The examples uh, that you guys give to us uh, on hospitality and a love for God's Word and, and really trying to reach other people with the gospel. And so we're very thankful for your gospel ministry, and we do pray for you regularly. They, uh, my church has been praying for this weekend. They said, oh, no, Pastor Steve, you're going to go visit Waikai. We really better pray for you that they can, they can get through Exodus with you. And uh, that's where we're going to be for the next, uh, this Sunday and the next Sunday. We're going to be in the book of Exodus, Lord willing. And as we kind of get started, I thought we could first uh, read our passage uh, this morning. I don't know what is the tradition here, but I'll go ahead and read it for us. In Exodus chapter 1, that's where we're going to be. Exodus chapter 1, and we are looking at verses 15 through 22. Listen to God's word. Uh, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. May God bless the reading of his word. We're going to go through in these next, this Sunday and the next, some passages that are maybe less familiar with for some of us when it comes to the book of Exodus. And it comes to the story of Moses. You know, usually when we think of Exodus or when we think about Moses, we think about those movies, that Cecil B. DeMille movie with Charlton Heston or that Prince of Egypt movie or even the latest iteration, I think it's with Christian Bale. He did an Exodus movie also. Or maybe we just remember it from our flannel graphs back in Sunday school. And usually what do we remember about Exodus? We remember it starts with Moses' mother. She puts the little baby Moses into the basket. The basket flows down the Nile. And alligators are kind of coming out, snapping at the, snapping at the basket. And meanwhile, Miriam is on the coast or just by the, by the shore and watching over Moses. And finally, the basket arrives to Pharaoh's daughter, and she welcomes him. 
And if we're not careful, we might think that this is where the story begins. But really, the story begins with an extraordinary tale about God-fearing midwives, Shifra and Pua. That is really the focus of our passage this morning. It is in verse 17. It is this repeated verse, verse 17, this repeated phrase, verse 17 and 21, the midwives feared God. They feared God. And we'll get to that, but before we do, let's just overview kind of these few verses here that we might get a better understanding of it. And these verses 15 through 22 really progress in three basic acts, three basic portions through this, these couple verses. First, there is Pharaoh's plot. You notice that in verses 15 and 16. Israel has been in Egypt for, for about 400 years. They have been under the oppressive thumb of Pharaoh. Uh, they, but, you know, Israel continues to grow because of the promises of the Lord. They continue to multiply. And this multiplying and growing is so numerous that it becomes the excuse for Pharaoh to oppress Israel. I mean, here are these immigrants that have lived with us for these 400 years. They're, they're outgrowing us. And so in this campaign of almost ethnic hate, we would say, he commits Israel to a life of ruthless enslavement. He hopes to break their backs and then in doing so also break their wills. But that measure proves unfruitful because they have been so fruitful. They continue to multiply. They, and so finally Pharaoh decides on his new plan, and it would be genocide, right? We see that in verses 15 and 16. This is his new policy. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. And these words are incredibly wicked. They are sinful. They are evil. They are satanic. This is talking about murder. This is talking about infanticide. No doubt Pharaoh issues this death warrant. He plays a part in the offspring of the serpent. He was, he's trying to thwart the blessings of God. He's trying to end the mandate of God to countermand the creation mandate. And what seems uppermost in Pharaoh's mind is to get rid of the boys. So if there are any boys in this room, you should listen up. Because <laughs> he wanted to kill them all. Why just the boys and let the girls live? Because Pharaoh was afraid that there would be a military revolution against him. So if you get rid of the boys, you kill the boys, so you kill the, res uh, the insurrection. And so Pharaoh gives his edict. He tells the midwives, you know, children, they often die in childbirth. So while they're still delivering, when the baby comes out, if it's a boy, make it look like an accident. Now, Shifra and Pua were probably not the only midwives of Israel. After all, the population of Israel was facing enormous growth. We can only assume that they are representatives of a guild of midwives. But I want you to notice something very strange, very strange about these midwives. They have names, Shifra and Pua. Now, this is really important because in the book of Exodus, names become very, very important, especially the name of God, but you notice that the king of Egypt is never given a name. Pharaoh 
remains nameless throughout Exodus. He's never mentioned. He, I mean, this is the one who thinks he has all the power. This is the one who says, I'm going to call in these Hebrew midwives. I'm going to tell them to commit genocide against their own people, and they're going to obey. This is the kind of Pharaoh and king and the power that he has. He expects complete obedience, and yet he's a no-name. That's who he is. And yet these two lowly midwives, their names are forever memorialized in God's word. In the Hebrew construction, the names Shifra and Pua are not mentioned in passing, but focused on them. In regards to the Hebrew text, one commentator writes, it could even be said that Moses virtually stretched out the wording employed in identification of their names for emphasis. In other words, Shifra and Pua are names that are to be honored, remembered that others might follow their example because in God's economy and God's plan, Pharaoh is anonymous. He's nothing, even though he's powerful. His name doesn't matter, but these women do. God cares and wants us to very much care about their identity rather than the power that they were up against. Now, next in the narrative, you see the midwives' courage. You look at verses 17 through 19. It says that the midwives, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them and let the male children live. So Shifra and Pua received their orders from the king, and what did they do? They lead a pro-life resistance, don't they? They disobey Pharaoh. Not out of any personal gain. Zero personal gain for them. Not to make themselves heroes, but at great personal risk for themselves. They feared God and flatly refused to carry out their assignment. These women... They're underdogs in every sense of the word. In this society, during this time, they are not even, being women, they are not even considered fully human. They are considered, and they are slaves. They're these dirty immigrants into this purity of this land. And yet they stand before Pharaoh and they shake their fist at him. Not literally. Sometimes we think that people act the way they do because God appears to them in some type of great scene like Moses at the burning bush and all of a sudden their lives are transformed and they do great things for the Lord. But not here. As far as we know, God never appeared or spoke to these midwives. They didn't have the law. They didn't have a great knowledge of the traditions of the patriarchs. It's been 400 years, but they had an understanding of right and wrong and the divinely created order. Maybe something was passed down to them through the number of years where Genesis 9-6 comes through and they understood whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. But they had a grasp of the sanctity of life and were not prepared to act contrary to their conscience, no matter what political pressures were coming upon them. Now, it's likely several years pass between verse 17 and verse 18. After all, Pharaoh wanted everyone, everything done kind of clandestinely behind closed doors. So it's likely several years later, one of his servants kind of came up to Pharaoh and said, <clears throat> excuse me, Pharaoh, just want to let you know that I've done my rounds in Goshen 
And there are a lot of boys running around Goshen. So in verse 18, Pharaoh brought Shifra and Puah and asked them the question that they perhaps had long feared would be asked, why are there still boys among the Israelites? And having several years to think of their response, they essentially say, Pharaoh, you know, you know those Hebrew women, they're just not like Egyptian women. <laughs> they're not, you know, you know, the Egyptian women, they're kind of dainty or they're vigorous. And that word in verse 19 has an implication that they are like wild animals. Uh, they're built for babies, you know. They, they, before we even get there, the babies, they just pop right out. They're already there before we can get there. Now, at this point, you might be wondering, did Shifra and Pua just lie? Did they just break the ninth commandment? You know, some would say, well, they could be truthful. Maybe what they did was they told all the pregnant moms, don't call me when you're having a baby, you know, because I'm under orders to do this with, from the Pharaoh. Or maybe there were some genuine cultural differences between Hebrew and Egyptian women. But what it does, but that's, I don't think that's the case because in verse 17 it says, they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. They, in other words, they deliberately disobeyed. They had the opportunity to kill the babies, and they didn't. Some, like Augustine and Calvin, they would say something like, they were commendable for what they did for saving these children, but they are not commended for lying. So they're kind of separating these two things, saying that the Lord is not approving of their lying, they're, he, the Lord is approving of what they did. But I look at the text and I find no indication that they did anything that was considered blameworthy. In fact, every indication is that they are praised for what they did. Look, look at, you see, you see in verse 15, 17, 20, 21. Verse 15, they're given names. Verse 17, it says they feared God. Verse 20 says God dealt well with the midwives. And verse 21 says because they feared God, he gave them families. In other words, I think it's saying God is pleased with these two women. So the question is, is their lie justified? You know, does it, do the ends justify the means? Can you just go ahead and lie for like a greater cause or something? Well, theologians have historically divided uh, this understanding of right and wrong in terms of lies ethically in kind of three ways. And one of those ways is this category called the lie of necessity. Now, some Christians disagree about this, but I would argue that under the right circumstances, you don't have to be com completely truthful about everything. So let's think about this. Like, I, my son, he, one of my sons at least, he enjoys basketball, not very good at it like his father, but he likes basketball, and so I play with him, and I say, okay, when you're playing basketball, when you drive right, don't tell them, I'm going to drive right right now to the hoop. You have to be tricky. You have to fool them. You don't have to be completely honest. You need to go right, but secretly you want to go left. Or in the example of a just war, deception and false information is a key element in strategy. The enemy does not deserve the truth. So under dire circumstances, I do think, dire circumstances, it is appropriate to lie. 
Now, I know some of you parents are looking at me and say, great, thanks a lot, Pastor Steve, because I have a couple kids, and they seem to always be in dire circumstances. And they're now, now you have this category for them. But I think we need to be not so rigid about some of the laws we see in God's Word. Now, don't get me wrong. I think God's Word is there. It's there. It's what it says is what it says. But for example, let's think about the fourth commandment, about the Sabbath, honor the Sabbath. David and his men ate the bread on the Sabbath, and Jesus said they didn't violate it. The fifth commandment says, honor your father and mother. Yet Jesus says, you can't be my disciple unless you hate your father and mother. The sixth commandment says, don't kill. And yet in the Old Testament, there are provisions to protect your family from an intruder. So I think the same is happening here. Under incredible circumstances, these women are dealing shrewdly with this shrewd and snake-like pharaoh. They take the very weapons of the serpent, craft and cunning, and turn it against them, and not to save themselves, mind you, but to save innocent lives. Uh, Jen Wilkin, she writes that before Israel is delivered by a man with flowing robes and a mighty staff, Israel is quite literally delivered by two women with flowing tears and no sign of authority whatsoever. And such God-fearing women are all over the Bible. We only have to think about Rachel before Laban, Rahab before the king of Jericho, Jael as she defeated Sisera, Ruth when she met with Boaz. And this is how it is. All throughout Scripture, you see the bravery of women, how they continue to be indispensable to the mission of God. Who will stop the mouth of the serpent that is trying to devour God's people? Two women who feared God more than men. So the narrative moves from Pharaoh's plot and the midwife's courage to these concluding verses in verses 20 through 22. God dealt well with them. The people multiplied, grew very strong. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Notice the irony here. These midwives who had no children of their own, who were told and commanded to go and kill children, are now because of their refusal, blessed with children. Everything in these texts leads us to the conclusion that the midwives did what was right because they feared the Lord. And in kind of like a bit of a cliffhanger there in verse 22, we see that Pharaoh adopts his final solution. is this. He's going to exterminate all the Jews, all the boys. He basically gives a decree. It's public. It's open now. It's open season on the boys of Israel. You see them. You toss them into the sewer system of, of the Nile. You kill them. Now, the focus, as I've said, is that repeated phrase in verses 17 and 21, the midwives feared God. I wonder if you've ever noticed that in this passage that everyone fears something. The midwives feared God. A pharaoh, he fears the people. In verse 12 earlier, the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. You see, everyone, whether you're here in this room, whether you're online back home, live streaming, you're afraid of something or you're afraid of someone. 
I see that almost all of you are wearing your masks. Perhaps you're afraid of getting COVID. Perhaps you're afraid of giving COVID. Perhaps you're like, ah, I don't really like wearing masks, but I wear it anyways, and you, because you're afraid of people thinking that you might be afraid. Some of you are afraid of disappointing your parents. Some of you are afraid of being known as, you know, that kind of Christian. Some of you are afraid of your future or money or career, afraid for your children. And many of you are afraid of what people think of you. Whom or what do you fear? The Bible says the smartest way to go about your life is to fear God because that is the beginning of wisdom. What does it mean to fear God? I think it's a complex term throughout the Bible. It's rich and complex, but it's already appeared a number of times earlier in Genesis. In Genesis 20:11, Abraham rationalizes his lying about Sarah to Abimelech by saying, there is no fear of God in this place. In other words, people are going to do whatever they want. There is no moral code. In Genesis 22:12, when Abraham is willing to offer Isaac upon the altar, it proves that Abraham fears God. In other words, Fearing God has the idea of obeying God rather than one's own sense of security. Later in Exodus 18:21, Jethro advises Moses, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, and they're described as those who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. So what does it mean to fear God? It is to have such an understanding and love and delight for who God is. It is to have such an understanding and reverence and awe of His presence and purposes that when presented with all sorts of alternatives, we make decisions that are pleasing to Him first and foremost. Certainly as a Christian, there are fears that we are to be rid of. First John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. In other words, all those of you in this room who have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and His death upon the cross, those of you who have repented of your sins and followed after God, you who are sons and daughters of God, there is no more servile, slavish kind of fear. God will never reject you or condemn you. And yet, all Christians are to have a healthy fear of God. Because Isaiah 8.13 says, But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread, and then He will become a sanctuary to you. Even our Lord Jesus Christ, described in Isaiah 11, is described as one who fears the Lord. We may profess all sorts of truths, and there are so many so-called Christians who live like practical atheists with no fear of God. There is no weight of the glory of God that falls upon them. They live life like, I know these things. But they don't live their life like God exists. As if there was nothing to fear from His judgment or discipline. God rests inconsequentially upon them. But the midwives, they feared God, didn't they? 
I mean, think about this with me. They could have feared so many different things. After all, they were the minority in the land, weren't they? They could have feared the majority. Uh, They could have simply gone along with the flow of Egyptian culture. One pastor astutely says that as believers, we are cognitive minorities. We must embrace the fact that we're going to believe some things that people simply don't believe anymore. And so are you prepared for that? Are you prepared for that? Because if you believe in the Bible and you love Jesus, you love what his disciples had to say, you're going to believe something that the rest of the world thinks is absolutely insane. Because of what you believe about sex or men and women or race or even about life. Think about it. The, the women could have gone along to get along. They could have rationalized killing infants and said something like, ah, well, they're babies, just not people. They're not worth that much. But they didn't. They feared God. They understood the sanctity of life. And right now, let me just say this, and this is not meaning to be a political statement, but when it comes to the topic of abortion, it's a simply a matter of right and wrong. That's simply what it is. We are made in the image of God, and if we fear God, we will value life. We will value life made in His image, no matter how big or small or what stage of development. I think the issue of abortion among Christians has fallen on hard times. It's fallen to the wayside. I think we are fearful of lumping ourselves in with like maybe perhaps a political party or others seeing us as being, oh, that kind of Christian. But my concern is that many have abdicated on the issue of abortion because they keep pushing it further and further down the issue of, uh, on social issues because, frankly speaking, they're tired of hearing of it. And there's a fear of man and their opinion and has gripped them more than the fear of God. Now, again, the midwives, they could have feared the majority or they could have simply feared for their own lives, couldn't they? Their own personal status. Can you imagine what it was like standing before Pharaoh? I mean, I imagine Pharaoh just kind of seated on his throne in this huge kind of auditorium. And there they are, these poor midwives coming in with tattered clothes. And here he is bedecked with gold, with a staff in his hand, with, you know, Pharaoh's makeup on his eyes, because that's how he's always portrayed. And I could see him saying, you know who I am, Shifra and Pua, you know who I am. I am Pharaoh. I don't know any Joseph. And you listen to me. But they understood the sanctity of life as a divine gift. And in an act of civil disobedience, they disobeyed Pharaoh because this is what God's people always do. When the laws of man contradict the laws of God, our first allegiance is to God. And as Peter and other apostles said, we must obey God rather than man. As Christians, we will not and must not render unto Pharaoh or Uncle Sam or Caesar what belongs to God. Never. Our allegiance must be total. The overarching question we must ask ourselves is this. Is there any fear of God in you? A type of fear of God that would submit 
to all the authorities that God has placed in your life, even when it's very difficult. And a type of fear of God that would mean disobedience should it mean disobeying God. But fearing God is not only applicable to just when authorities command you to sin. There are so many different ways that we can apply the fear of God, whether in our evangelism, our discipleship, confessing sin to one another, could mean not fearing a virus more than fearing God. Again, think about what was at stake for these midwives. On the one hand, their job, their safety, their security, their prestige, even life itself. And on the other, what was there? Uncertainty, probability of suffering, and very likelihood of death. So how do you choose between these two things are happening? A healthy fear tips the scales. Calvin said reverence towards God had greater influence with them. And so can that be said of you? What is your great influencer? Who is your influencer? CNN, TBN, ESPN, all the ends. Maybe perhaps your greatest influencer is just yourself. Church, in the words of Isaiah, let God be your dread that he might be your sanctuary. Both things, a fear of God and a love of God must be uppermost in our hearts and in our heads, and in our affections. Let the glory of God rest heavy upon you. Let the power of God be your praise. Let the wisdom of God be esteemed. Let the justice of God be respected and the grace of God be cherished. Fear God, and so that we might, like the apostle Peter, conduct ourselves, as it says in 1 Peter 1, with fear throughout the time of our exile knowing that we were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for recording the lives of Shifra and Pua for us to examine And Father, and we, 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 we plead with you that we would have a healthy fear. Not the kind of fear in which we are cowering. Not some kind of slavish kind of fear. But a reverence and an awe of who you are and may that understanding of who you are change how we live. May a fear of you be present among our hearts, in our affections, in our heads. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.